Amen. What a blessing. Choir, as you make your way down, and musicians, thank you for leading us in a time of worship. And I think that uh, what Matt and Gail did was they held auditions for who would be able to marry their son. And so it's really an arranged marriage and all based on singing ability is how that's going down. Because how else would it be that everybody in one family can sing? I don't understand. Let's get our Bibles out and open to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, we're in our fourth week of our series, Ordinary. And I'm so grateful and so thankful for all of the wonderful uh, homes that have opened themselves up for our connect groups and all the leaders and just all the wonderful uh, things that God has done on Sunday nights as we've been together this summer, uh, gathered around God's Word in homes. It's been such a blessing. Uh, so Luke chapter 10 is where we'll be today, or if you're struggling to find that, it's on page 1196 in the pew Bible in front of you. So you can just grab that hardback Bible and go to page 1196. We'll get there in a few minutes. The other verses that I'll reference will come up on the screen. Let's pray and ask God's help today, and then we'll study. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we want to confess before you that uh, we recognize that this is your word, and it's given directly to us and for us, that it's perfectly applicable and relevant to our lives right here this morning in this time and place. And God, that it's perfect and inerrant in every way, and we thank you for it. And now, Lord, as we look to it, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to receive as we uh, look to you, Father God. And Father, as you seek to minister and sanctify us, we thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you endeavored to start uh, just reading through the Bible to see various uh, things that the Bible has to, to say, maybe you were like me and grew up uh, in a non-Christian home, in a non-Christian environment. Uh, I don't know, but one of the uh, unique things about that is that you pick the Bible up for the first time and you start reading it, and uh, since you don't know what's going to happen on the next page, you've never heard the story before, uh, it, it creates uh, a certain experience maybe that might be unique to uh, those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt. So for example, you start reading through the Bible and questions are going to start popping up in your mind. You know, you're, you open up and begin to read the creation account. And uh, the first question you might have is, well, God, why did you put the tree in the garden? Well, what was the, the point of that? And then you keep reading and you think, well, God, what, what was it about Abraham that you chose to build a people around him? And you keep reading and you say, well, God, the children of Israel, why would you pick them? Why, why would you pick this people uh, that seems like the least likely choice of all the candidates out there, the weakest and most impoverished and enslaved people who uh, just, it just seems strange. And so on and on it goes as you're reading. You would have all these questions that are always bouncing through my mind as I have the opportunity to share the gospel and teach the Bible to those who are unreached uh, around the world they ask these questions that sometimes we sort of forget. And then 
as you read through the Bible, these questions are coming, but the more you read, then the questions start to get answered. And the way the Bible usually answers the questions is by, first of all, revealing the character and nature of the God to whom story the Bible's revealing, right? We get to, a lot of our questions are answered as we get to know God. We get to get know who He is and, and, and what He's about and what is His nature and character. But then there's another interesting facet as you start reading through the Bible. It teaches us a lot about ourselves. It teaches us about how little people change over time. And we would ask questions like, well, God, why is this particular story in the Bible? Or why do you say this? And then you come to realize because that's dealing with people who are having a a struggle or a specific issue in their lives. And it's the same thing that's happening thousands of years later. And we begin to realize that it's God's way of communicating to us. Here's who I am. This is my nature. This is my character. And here's who you are, and here's your nature and character. Here's your tendencies, and here's things you should know about. And so, on it goes, revealing these amazing characteristics of God and these amazing tendencies of us. And yet, as we get towards the end of the New Testament, we realize that there's a a great danger in what has just happened. That as we've read through these 66 books, as we've sort of seen this uh, redemption story unfolding, that so many of the things that we have read about and so many of the ways that God's opened our eyes uh, are, are things that we need right now in the here and now. And we find ourselves falling into the same traps over and over and over again. And if we're not careful, we look at the pages of Scripture, we read things, and we think, you know, it's a shame what happened there. It's a shame what people did there. It's, uh, it's, it's too bad that God had to respond this way to that people, or why did God do the things that He did? But yet we find ourselves in those same exact places. And I think the danger that we face today is at least one of them, for sure, is that as we sit here yet again, In church, it's another Sunday morning, it's another sermon. So many different ways to approach today. Some people just approach it as, this is Sunday morning, this is what I do, this is where I go. And then when that's over, I'll go on to do other things. Some of you have actually taken the time to uh, pray this morning and seek the Lord's face and ask Him to speak to you and to prepare you for what He might say to you. I mean, there's, there's across this large spectrum... And there's a, there's a huge gamut of ways that we can approach today. But there is a danger, a tendency that is consistently seen throughout the Bible. That generation after generation, people have this innate tendency to want to justify themselves through religious activities. Uh, there's a, a thousand scriptures that would illustrate this. We don't have time for a thousand. Last week we did a thousand. This week we'll just do a few. Jeremiah chapter 5, for example, is a place. These will come up on the screen. Jeremiah is called to be a prophet in the most difficult of times. And he, he is called to serve a people who are religious people. They're faithful people. 
They're faithful in their religion. They're, they're doing the things that they're supposed to do as religious people. And yet in chapter 5, here's what the Lord says. Verse 27, he says, Like a cage full of birds, speaking of the people of God, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And I shall not avenge myself on a nation such as this, he asks. Now that sounds like God is talking to this to an enemy. This sounds like God is speaking to some rebellious band of marauders that are taking advantage of people and pillaging villages. And yet he's, he's talking to religious people. He's talking to people who could look like us. People who are, are going to church and offering sacrifices and, and offering prayers and going through the motions. And yet he's utterly displeased with them. And they're completely ignorant of their condition before him. And he says, you may be involved in religious activities. You may be doing things that outwardly make you appear to be devoted to me. But your heart is in the wrong place. He always calls his people by the heart. He always tugs at the heart. And he says the indication that you're not what you're supposed to be is that you don't, you don't pick up the cause of the fatherless. You're not defending the needs of the needy. We could go forward into the New Testament to the book of James where we find the exact same scenario playing out. James, a half-brother of Jesus, is talking to religious people. He's talking to people in a church context. And he says in James chapter 1 that he says you should be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you are only hearers, you're deceiving yourselves. Then he gives explanation. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, and he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So the Bible's saying that just like in Jeremiah chapter 5 or Jeremiah chapter 27 or in Ezekiel or on and on it goes, Psalm 68, that people can be hearers and devoted hearers but not doers. And if they do that, they're deceiving themselves and they would be like a man who looks at himself in the mirror, sees because mirrors don't lie. That's the thing about a mirror. A mirror is going to reflect what is in it so you look at yourself in the mirror you see yourself for who you are you see whatever you know flaw is going on or whatever needs to be fixed but then you walk away as if there was nothing wrong you just ignore what you just saw which would be like coming to church hearing a sermon sensing the conviction of the holy spirit and then going about our business as if nothing ever happened that's the same thing as looking in a mirror so James goes on in verse 25, he says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful, he's not a forgetful here, but he's a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. 
And now James is going to give us just a little bit of explanation here that will set us up to look at Luke chapter 10 with fresh eyes and not the way that we've always read Luke chapter 10. James says, if anyone among you thinks he's religious, if anybody has any assumptions about his religiosity, about his devotion to activities, James says, and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. And this one's religion is useless. Now that seems a little random. It seems a little out of left field for James to just, why does he choose the tongue? Again, God always tugs the heart. Always. And so the reason that we begin, James begins with this Issue of the tongue as an indicator of what's really going on, whether or not religion is true or useless, is because we know what the Bible teaches. What James is drilling into is the abundance of the heart. What's the abundance of the person's heart? So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's right at the heart. And then he turns again in the very next verse, and James says, here's what real religion is, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So again, the heart, the abundance of the heart, and then again, the heart and the heart. Now, how are these two, the heart? Well, he's he's bringing these two things together, compassion and consecration. Think of it this way. In the world, there's always those religious people who on one side take up the social causes that are all about making sure that uh, whatever the social need is, whatever the social agenda is, that they're all about that. And they're willing to, they're willing to get dirty. They're willing to, to, to get involved. And they're willing to uh, do things to, to bring humanitarian aid and effort to others. But they take sin very lightly. They're they're all about helping people, but they don't don't monitor their own lives. Their their moral compass is completely out of whack. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got people who are all about living pure lives and all about avoiding sinful things or touching anything that's dirty, but they don't lift a finger to help the needy. And so it's, again, it's just a heart issue. And so James is saying, don't get involved in religion unless it's both. Unless you have compassion for those who are in need, but also understand that God has called us as his people to live a distinctly different life. And so now we want to take that understanding of the world in which Jesus entered, that that the the, the, when the fullness of time had come and God sent forth his son, that he entered into a world filled yet again with religion. It was almost like it was Jeremiah's time all over again. And Jesus comes in and there's all this religious activity and yet it's all, it's all wrong. It's all missing the mark. And so in Luke chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 25. So Jesus is out teaching and ministering, and the Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer 
stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Verse 27, so he answered and said, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the man said to him, well, you've you've answered rightly, Jesus says. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, remember, he's talking to a religious man who is clearly aware of what the, the law is, aware of what the information is, He wants to justify himself, so he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Which will then launch us into this very familiar passage of Scripture. But one that we often miss what the first hearers would have heard when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. That those who were standing around Jesus that day would not have understood it the way we so oftentimes bend it around our modern Context. Understand, this is a man who just like the Lord is speaking to in Jeremiah chapter 5 or just like James speaks to in James chapter 1. He responds. He knows what the, the law is. He's been in the church service. He's memorized that. And Jesus is going to use this parable to expose him as somebody who is practicing false religion and to give us an indication of what it is we need to do. How do we need to respond to these things? Because if I just stand up here and preach a sermon on James 1.27, here's what's going to happen. People are going to feel guilty because they're not doing what James 1.27 says. And so out of that guilt, they're going to try to deal and mitigate with that guilt. And righteousness, no righteous act is going to be born from guilt. Conviction will yield to righteousness. But just being guilty because you're not doing what you ought to do is not where we want to go. Where we want to go this morning is we want the Lord to convict our hearts and open our eyes and show us what it is we need to do in response to those who he brings around us. And that's what's going on in Luke chapter 10. Now let's read this parable beginning in verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, There was a certain man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise there was a Levite, and when he arrived at the place, he came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. So he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he poured on oil and wine and he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. So on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will come again and I will repay you. So which of these, Jesus says, these three, do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, well, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said, well, go and do likewise. You see, what we're talking about is how do we respond to those who are vulnerable. And what this parable illustrates is how we ought to respond to people who are vulnerable. And when we see someone who's in a vulnerable situation, we have to figure out now what is it that we should do. 
And there's a lot of ways that we might wrongly respond and yet convince ourselves that we're fully in accord with what James is talking about in James 1.27, that we're, we're visiting widows and orphans in their time of need. Well, what does that actually mean? And that's what this parable will teach us. And what you're going to see this morning is that the most common aversion that we have to involving ourselves with people who are vulnerable centers around fear. And I, I think Jesus tells this parable because he understands that. He understands that it creates a, a sense of fear in our, our heart and that we don't like to admit that we're fearful people, but when it comes to these issues, we are afraid. And oftentimes, when we look at those who are vulnerable and we're trying to sort out, now how do I, how do I deal with uh, people who are fatherless? How do I deal with people who are, who are desperately needy, who are unable to defend themselves or protect themselves. You see, because what they need is they need someone to defend them, someone to protect them. They need someone to embrace them, someone to come alongside them. And, and you know that that's not just a, a passing glance. That's not just, you know, feeding them a, a, a one-time meal or giving them a word of encouragement or, or helping them get from point A to point B. That that may be hospitable, but that's not... That's not what Jesus is describing here in this parable. And you see, we, we think about things like adoption. We think about orphan care. We think about foster care. We think about people who are, for reasons that are out of their control, find themselves in situations where they're utterly and completely vulnerable, that they don't have a voice. And so what we want to do is we want to figure out, now, how can I be a part of this and take the least amount of risk possible? And if we're trying to eliminate risk, if that's our motivation, if we're, if we're going to live under this uh, false assumption that somehow we can uh, limit our risk in some certain certain way with some circumstance or situation, well, then we're going to fail miserably before we ever get started. Because the truth of the matter is, is that we have a, plenty of illustrations of times in our life when we thought we had done the prudent things to reduce the risk in our life only to find out that really it didn't work out that way. We, we all found out after Katrina just how, how worthwhile it was for us to pay all those insurance premiums. You see, thinking that you have flood insurance and then finding out that your house just got washed away and yet they're not going to give you a penny are two completely different things. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that we don't know if we're going to make it to the end of this sermon. We don't know. We, we look up and we look at the giant beams that are holding the ceiling up and we examine the architecture and we find some level of comfort in that. But the truth of the matter is, is that right now we don't know that it could come crashing down on us right now and that that's completely out of our control and there's nothing we can do about it. And then when we leave here, we're going to go somewhere and wherever we go, there's going to be this, this, this absolute, just incredible amount of risk that we 
We don't want to think about, but it doesn't make it not there. You're going to get in your car and drive down the road, and every time you pass another car going the other way, there was only two feet separating you from utter calamity and probably death in any moment. And yet cars whiz by, whiz by, and we somehow feel safety in that. And we'll go to some restaurant and sit down, and we'll have lunch, and we'll trust that the food that we're being served is, doesn't have some sort of poisonous bacteria on us. That it's going to kill us or make us extremely sick or whatever the case may be. And then on and on it goes. And everywhere you go, and you can, some people just obsess about these things. And then they stay in their house all day and never leave. Which again is just ridiculous because a meteor could fall out of the sky and flatten them. You see, the point is, is that you cannot mitigate your risk. That that's the denial of the sovereignty of God. That God is in control. And that all of our human efforts to reduce risk actually cost us something great. You see, when we're trying to eliminate risk, well, we're going to miss out on the best things in life. We're not going to adopt a child. Forget that. We're not going to become a foster parent. Forget that. We're not going to uh, get on a plane and fly to some strange foreign land where there's all sorts of crazy bugs and diseases and all sorts of things that are there to get you. We're not going to do that because it's not safe. And here's the thing. If you're trying to eliminate risk, if you just stay on that system, then really not only should you not adopt, should you not be a foster parent, should you not go on a mission trip, You shouldn't join this church. I mean, if safety is your ultimate goal, then ultimately the one thing you aren't going to do is love because love is risky. And you see... To love is to risk. There's no way to love without opening yourself up to risk. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. You see, there's there's no street lights along the path from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's no emergency call boxes. There's no police officers. There's no 911. There's just a dark, windy road, lonely, fraught with danger. That's all there is. And so when you embark on a journey, whatever it is that's causing you to have to go from one city to the other is important enough for you to, to, to take that risk because you know that that journey's dangerous. You know. And so away you go, down the, the way. And this man, he is overtaken by thieves. And so as he lays there half dead, as the priest and the Levite approach, it's not that they're too religious to help him necessarily. I mean, there are are some religious... There's some religious things going on here, but I think the point that Jesus is simply making is, first and foremost, the obvious truth is it's dangerous to help the man because you know that there's 
there's caves and mountaintops on both sides of the roadway. And you know that the pirates and the bandits that, that hurt this man are still up there. And so what you don't want to do is you don't want to really, you don't want to get involved in a situation. You don't, you don't want to incite their wrath against you. And you know that involving yourself in whatever's going on with him is going to, it could lead to things that you don't want to deal with. And so they, they walk by because they don't want to get in the middle of it. It's a, it's a self-defense mechanism. It's self-protection. They know how easy it would be for them to be laying in the ditch half dead. And because they're not, maybe these bandits and these pirates that lie in wait for unsuspecting travelers to come along, maybe they, maybe they let the priests and the Levites go because of their position. And so the priests and the Levites are walking along, and when they see somebody who's been taken advantage by the bandits, they don't want to get involved in the situation because it might violate the, the unspoken agreement that they have with the, with the dangerous people. And so if they help him, then they might revoke their sort of protection over them. Whatever the reason is, they don't want to get involved because they don't want to end up like this man. They're trying to avoid Risk. They're trying to just navigate their way between two cities. And what happens to you and me is if we're trying to navigate our way between two places, between the, the time of our salvation and the, the place we're going to be for eternity, if we're trying to just navigate our way between the now and the then and, and stay safe and keep ourselves out of trouble, then we're going to miss out on the best that this life has to offer, and we're going to miss out on what God's called us to. And we would hear words from God like words that's, that are spoken in Jeremiah chapter 5. You see, when the Samaritan comes along and he sees the man lying in the ditch, you have to understand that what he does is not an act of charity. An act of charity would be some, you know, to, to stand him up and to brush him off. And to put him back about his way. It, this is far more than charity. This, is, this goes way beyond. Not only does he bandage up his wounds. But he takes him to an innkeeper. He promises to pay whatever costs are incur incurred. He goes the extra mile. Now, how, this is a question that everyone listening to Jesus would be thinking. They would be wrestling with the, the fact that these two people walk by and they're trying to sort all that out. They're, they're struggling with the fact that the person who's doing all the helping is a Samaritan. They're trying to sort all that out. But above all that, they're, they're, they're looking at what Jesus is saying this man does, the way that he responds to him. And they, they would have to ask themselves the same question we would. How is this Samaritan responding to a person in need. What, what, what would make us understand this? What is a twist we could put into this story that would make it all make perfect sense and go, oh yeah, yeah, that makes exact sense. The Samaritan is treating the person in need as if he were part of his family. You see, if the story went that the priest went by and the Levite went by and then suddenly the 
the man's father came by or his brother came by or his son came by and saw his father laying in the ditch, it would make perfect sense because of course you would respond that way. Of course you would bandage him up and clean him up and put him on your animal and take him back. I mean, of course you would because he's your family. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to drive home. That he's saying that, that pure and undefiled religion is when you treat people who are in need as if they are your family. You just thought I made you mad last week. Some of you are still bristling at me over. Well, it's, it's our family time at lunchtime. Take it up with the Lord. He's the one that says the parable. This Samaritan teaches this person in need. He, he, he treats him as if he's his family member. I mean, for, for a family member, we wouldn't hesitate. I, I don't hesitate to put myself in danger for a family member. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not analyzing risk for a family member. I, I'm, not, I'm not mitigating my personal safety with a family member. Whatever the cost is when it comes to my family, I'm willing to incur that. I'm willing to, to do whatever it takes. In other words, when it comes to my family, I utterly and completely, innately believe in the sovereignty of God. And so do you. No one is trying to figure out how are we going to pay for this Medical treatment that our child needs. No, nobody's, they're just doing it. They'll worry about that later. But if it's not your child, if it's not your family, then suddenly there's this, well, you know, I don't know what I can do. I don't know. And I'm the same way. And this is the struggle with this parable. That as I've, I've spent all week looking at Jesus' words, and I've tried to get my head around, I've tried to say, Lord, Aren't you saying something easier? I want it to be easier. I want the Samaritan to do less. I want it to be more attainable. But it's hard. You know, where was the Samaritan man going? We don't know. But he was going somewhere. And wherever he was going, that appointment, that what, whatever that schedule was, that just got obliterated. He stopped everything that he was doing. He threw all his plans to the side. He picked this man up. He cleaned him up. He put him on his animal. He went back to an inn. He stayed there overnight with him. And so he, he all of the things that were one in one instant going on, he's walking along the road. He's got a place to go. He's got an agenda. He's, he's doing life as, as he thinks he ought to be doing it. And he's just trying to execute, get from plan A to plan Plan B, and in a moment, everything changes, and he responds with utter and complete love. And is it risky? Yes, it's risky. Was it inconvenient? Absolutely. Was it hard? Was it expensive? Was it yes? All of those things. But Jesus 
said at the end, he said, he didn't say which one of these three is the greatest model of compassion you've ever seen. He didn't say which one of these three is the most remarkable person you'll ever meet. He didn't say which one of these three is the person that all of you should, should aspire to be but will never be able to reach the pinnacle of godliness. He didn't say any of that. He just said, which one of these three loved his neighbor? As if that's loving your neighbor? I thought loving your neighbor was like bringing them cookies when they move in. I thought loving your neighbor is, you know, just trying to keep your dog from defiling their yard. I thought that was loving your neighbor. I thought loving your neighbor is driving the speed limit in your uh, subdivision. Or I mean, Jesus said, no, which one of these three loved his neighbor? Go and do likewise. I just hear these words in my head, go and do likewise. This Samaritan man responded no differently than as if the man in the ditch were part of his own family. Would any of us do that? It actually happens here more than you think. And so just lest our hearts be discouraged, we want the Lord to remind us yet again that not because of us, but because of Him, because of what He's done in us, that we too can be like this Samaritan. Let's watch. Tomorrow is Alexis' birthday. And so we got her a little gift just to tell her how much we love her. And thank God for you and thank God for Aunt Bridget and Uncle Jeff. And thank God for a God who never leaves you alone. Thank you for that song. What a blessing. given day. Might be a Monday, might be a Thursday. Any given day, there's 450,000 children in the United States in the foster care system. The average foster child will bounce between five different homes, most of the time carrying their belongings in a black plastic garbage bag. Every year, 30,000 of those foster children will turn 18, will age out of the system, 
they'll receive a check for $500 and go on about their life. Brothers and sisters, God did not adopt us because we were attractive, because we brought something to the table, because we were deserving. He adopted us because He is merciful. And we need to understand that loving the vulnerable that pure and undefiled religion as Jesus would define it is warfare. It's not easy. And it's not safe. It's going to be fraught with challenge and risk. But the question is not, well, God, what will you give us in return that may make it worth our while. The question is simply, in light of what God has already done, what will we now do? Understand that I don't know about other churches, I just know about this church. And that I believe with all my heart that everything that we do we are to do together. That we do not operate independently, but we are part of a body. And we function in different ways, but when one goes, we all go. And whether it be taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, whether it be supporting orphans in various places around the world, or whether it be adopting children or fostering children, or caring for the uh, widow in her need here in this community. We do it together. And so, it may not be. In fact, we know it's not. That it's not that every family represented here this morning should start the process of Adoption. It's not that every family here this morning should enter into the system to be a, a foster home. It's that what God desires to do, we will not stand in the way of that. And that we will together work together to support one another, to see his glory manifested in whatever way he chooses to make it manifested. I don't know how many conversations I've had with Bridget and Jeff in the last two and a half years, but I know there's been many. And every step of the way, in every piece or nuance of that story, I remembered those events. I remembered the phone calls and the conversations and the, the times it would simply just be a text message that said, you need to pray today. But I know that together we can do things that individually we could never dream of. And we've seen God show us through our mission program 
that the impossible can become possible. So I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I want you to be aware that I was down at DHS two days this week. I'll be having lunch this week with the youth court judge that I'm making known to those in our community that there's a faith family on John Clark Road that wants to know what we can do to make a difference. And that we follow a God who has called us to step up together and to do everything we can that those who are vulnerable would have a safe place to grow up, would have food and clothing and shelter, and would be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you begin to pray and ask God what he would have you to do. It might be that you may not be in a position to bring someone into your home, but you are in a position to support someone else in our family who is. That I know for a fact there are several young families in this fellowship that have expressed to me a desire to adopt And their greatest challenge is the financial hurdle. And I always encourage them that God will provide that which they desire to do in obedience to Him. But it may be that some of you in this room may be able to bring a child out of being an orphan and into a family by paying for the adoption whereas another family would actually raise the child. It may be that we together begin to identify who among us may be willing to go through the process of getting into the foster system so that their home could potentially be used to house a child who's in need. What I do know is that there's never a a time as your pastor that there's not a family amongst us who is battling in some way with a child that they can't get out of the state's custody or they can't get into the state's custody. And that is a never-ending challenge and an ever-present grief to my heart. But I know this, that if we put ourselves in a position to be used, that the reason that Alexis and her siblings are in a wonderful, safe home right now is because somebody took the initiative to get into the system. The first step is just fill out the paperwork to be in the system. So therefore, if there's a child in an extended family situation who needs a place to go, you're in the system so you can go there. You can house them. Because if you're not in the system, your willingness is of no use. You can be an emergency placement home. Or you might be a home where you foster. 
But we as a congregation need to do everything we can to support what God's calling us to do, to make a difference in our community. If there are children in Harrison County who do not have a place to go, do not have a home to lay their head down in, then it's an abomination to the God who supposedly reigns over the church on every corner. Let it not be us. James said pure and undefiled religion is to visit the orphan and the widow in their trouble. The word to visit is the word that hurt me the most. I started meditating on that word. I started looking at that word in the Greek and found out that that word is the same word that we get the word bishop from. That that word has a, it's not drive by and wave. It's not, it's not give passing help to something. To to visit the way God intended. The reason he explains to visit in the parable of the Good Samaritan is because the word means to look after, to shepherd, to watch over, to walk with. I started thinking about how Jesus didn't just visit us. He didn't just come to earth and pass by and say hello and wish us well. He didn't just offer his help for a time. But he shepherded us. He said in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. When I leave, I'll make sure that you're provided for, that you're cared for, that my spirit indwells you. That's how he visited us. He demonstrated. He demonstrated his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He didn't talk about it. He didn't hear it. He did it. He demonstrated us. May it be that we demonstrate to the world around us that we are not simply hearers but we're doers and that together together we can do what individually we could never do pure and undefiled religion this is the God that we serve. So as a bunch of ex-orphans who've been snatched out of the orphanage of hell, what might God do this morning in our hearts? Who might he call? And who might we gather around? And how might we rally to accomplish what he's called us to? Let's stand.